Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time now for Bloomberg Opinion. Last night around 6 p.m., the New York Times released a whole cornucopia of stories that detailed as much as we know now and even a little bit more about President Donald Trump's tax returns. Tim O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, writes today that these taxes show he's a national security threat. I'm quoting, at best, he's a haphazard businessman, human billboard and serial bankruptcy artist who gorges on debt he may have a hard time repaying. And I won't say what he is at worst. What is he at worst, Tim? Well, at worst, funny, he's, you know, he's, he's a con artist and a grifter uh, who I think has perpetrated a number of public policy frauds on, on both his voters and, and the American public during his tenure, because what the tax returns reveal is that the person who was a signature force behind a major tax overhaul that benefited the most affluent members of our society. Um, Himself, he paid next to no taxes in 2016-2017, just $750. In many years, he paid no taxes at all. Um, I think the other thing that is substantiated in the Times report, it's been something that's been known about Trump for a long time, is that um, he has hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. I think he's got north of a billion, frankly. And uh, he may have a hard time paying that debt down if his creditors come calling. He is, his assets are certainly you know, well in excess of his current debts. Uh, but the problem is his assets aren't liquid. And uh, some of his biggest holdings are actually controlled by other people. So he's going to enter into a phase right now where he may be financially squeezed. It makes him a national security risk because if he can't sell his assets to pay back his loans, he's going to go looking for a handout, and that makes him vulnerable to foreign influence. So, Tim, you know, when you talk about real estate investors and, and so on, the there's so much um, – tax sheltering that those types of owners and investors can avail themselves to, whether it's depreciating uh, the value of a building and accelerating that depreciation and so on and so forth, that oftentimes you do see these big earners with little to no tax burden. How unusual do you think President Trump is here with his returns versus some of his peers? That's a good question, Paul. You know, um, uh, over the last two decades, Trump has underpaid uh, taxes by about $400 million relative to his peers, based on the Times data. Um, you know, the wealthiest taxpayers in the United States carry the biggest burden. They're the, the most affluent members of our society pay uh, more in terms of total dollar amounts uh, uh, in taxes than anyone else. Um, uh, but when you compare Donald Trump to his peers, he's, he's well below them. When you compare Donald Trump to an average American family, say a family making about $75,000 a year, uh, they're going to pay somewhere in the neighborhood of $14,000 in taxes in 2016, the year that Donald Trump paid $750. No one looking at that would say that that's equitable. So even if the taxes he pays comport with what real estate developers are allowed to do and has not run afoul of the tax code, there's a lot of inequity built into this. 
Now, obviously, we have to remember that this is his self-portrayal, right? These are his taxes that were presumably vetted by his accountants and so on. But, Tim, if you represent yourself as being able to pay a loan off and you're not able to pay that loan off, is that a crime? Well, if you misrepresent uh, to investors or to banks the value of your assets um, and you knowingly are making false statements, that is a form of fraud. Uh, there's, you know, it's on the banks and investors to do their own due diligence, but no one is allowed to go around and create valuations out of whole cloth uh, and, and, and try to get uh, funding based on that. Uh, Trump, is, Trump is being uh, investigated currently for that very thing, Vani, by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, this issue that Michael Cohn raised during his, his uh, congressional testimony, things that I've raised decades ago about how he accounts for his, his assets. Uh, you know, Michael Cohn said that Trump routinely and knowingly inflated valuations in order to get loans and investors. And that could uh, be putting him in, in, I think, legal peril in the, in the upcoming year. So, Tim, can you provide us just an update on what some of those external uh, investigations are of the president as perhaps it relates to his finances, uh, I guess, the, the Southern District of New York? Yeah, the Southern District of New York has been looking at, at, at Trump. The status of that is unknown. It's complex there because the Southern District, which is the U.S. Attorney's Office there, is federal. Uh, they are under uh, the Attorney General's uh, uh, guidance, and the Attorney General is someone who's routinely run interference for Trump. Um, the state attorney general in New York is looking at, uh, has looked at Trump's foundations and his charitable activities in the past. He and his children were, were tossed out of the philanthropic world for um, defrauding their own charity. Uh, I think um, the AG in New York is also looking at Trump's taxes. But I think the investigation in the district attorney's office in New York that is looking at Trump's payment of hush money to um, women who have alleged to have sexual encounters with him, uh, as well as possible accounting uh, uh, irregularities or, and or fraud um, at the Trump organization is, 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 is the one that's the most perilous for him. He's got no federal sway over that investigation. It's something that's going to be waiting for him if he doesn't get reelected in November. And I think it's something that's really animated a lot of his uh, agitation around these issues because you know he's going to be facing that next year. Tim, this isn't a flip question, but uh, I would like you to consider it. So about 200 million came from The Apprentice, a big, big sum. He was getting something like 50% of the uh, the royalties or, the, or the, the fees for that. Given that it's clear he's a money-losing businessman, could The Apprentice or Mark Barnett or, you know, somebody on behalf of consumers or viewers sue him for false advertising? Well, I don't, you know, I think, I think um, probably Mark Burnett could have gotten Donald Trump more cheaply than he did. That's one of the things we've realized in all the money he made from that show. Um, you know, I don't think, um, I don't see a false advertising issue arising with The Apprentice. I think the issue around The Apprentice has always been that Donald Trump was sitting in a fake boardroom uh, in these phony scenarios with aspiring entrepreneurs doling out his wisdom as the tried and true deal maker. And, and in fact, that persona is what helped lift him into the White House. White House. Yeah. And what we've seen time and again is that reality shows that he's never been a gifted deal maker or businessman, that he's been uh, a, a routine, um, he's had routine bankruptcies and other problems. The tax returns drive this home 
even further. Hey, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Know you're busy today. Tim O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, giving us his thoughts on uh, this uh, explosive story from the New York Times over the weekend. Uh, of course, uh, you know, Tim uh, wrote an authorized biography of uh, Trump years ago, was sued by Trump for that uh, before he was president. Uh, Tim uh, won that lawsuit. So uh, he's had a lot of experience with then real estate investor Donald Trump. Let's bring back Bill Rhodes, advisor to the world, really, and a banker to the world. We were talking a little bit about China in our last block, and now we want to move to Latin America. We had just begun on that. Bill, there are some very, you know, specific cases in Latin America. Obviously, Venezuela is one of them. But the countries that had been sort of skirting the worst of, you know, of the fallout from the coronavirus now seem to be right bang in the center of it. So Mexico, for example, and some of the other countries. How bad will it get over the next two to three quarters for Latin America? Well, I think Latin America is facing the greatest challenge it has in over a century. Uh, First of all, you have the uh, COVID-19 situation, uh, pandemic, which has really hit uh, Latin America harder than anywhere else. Um, The latest figures that I've seen uh, show that 40% of uh, the COVID deaths uh, so far in the world, and these are figures as of June, I haven't seen anything since, are coming from Latin America with only 8% of the population. Uh, So they are getting hit big time. And uh, the latest predictions that you find from the various banks, Bank of America, elsewhere, is that um, this year there'll be a decline of over 8%, 8.2%, although the World Bank and the IMF in June had talked about possibility of 10%, although although we'll just have to see. But it it is hitting Latin America much worse than the Middle East, Africa, or emerging Asia. Uh, And as you pointed out, I think Mexico, Brazil, uh, have been hit particularly hard. Uh, Mexico is on the way, uh, according to the latest statistics uh, put out by the central bank, the Bank of Mexico, to a drop of uh, GDP of between 8 and uh, uh, 8% and 12%. Uh, and it's only being helped keep the float by the flow of remittances from the United States. Um, that's number one, you know, is the COVID thing. Second of all, a lot of these countries, as you point out, had already been in trouble before. Argentina, Ecuador, Venezuela had all been uh, in recession, some of them pretty steep before COVID hit. And the third thing, which is most people forget, but we've we've discussed it here on, on your program, is the greatest um, uh, refugee problem Latin America has ever faced in its history. Over 5 million Venezuelans circulating around uh, Latin Amer- uh, South America. And the country that's been hit the most with them is Colombia with a million and a half. But these are like, you know, uh, three horsemen. Of course, there were four horsemen of the apocalypse. But I would say if you had one less horse, it would be three horses of the apocalypse hitting uh, Latin America all at one time. So, Bill, it just seems overwhelming the challenges uh, in Latin America because so many of the issues that you highlighted uh, were, are deep-seated, were there before the pandemic. Now they're just being exacerbated by the effects of the pandemic. What are some possible solutions um, for this part of the world? Well, going back to China, uh, there's an expression in Chinese Mandarin called Wei Qi, 
which means crisis opportunity. And um, Luis Alberto Moreno, who ran the Inter-American Development Bank, predicted 10 years ago that this is going to be the decade for Latin America because they were going to institute uh, reforms, which they didn't do. So this is an opportunity, I think, for them to institute major reforms in the area of education, health care services, the rule of law, and also to build up their institutions so that they can come out of this with some sort of a, a base uh, going forward. Also, there's an opportunity on the trade side because you have two major trading blocks in Latin America, Mercosur, uh, which is Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, Uruguay, and then you have the Pacific Alliance, which are all those countries in South America, from Chile on up through Mexico, which form, uh, as I said, the Pacific Alliance. And there's been talk about merging the two of those so that you would have, you know, one of the largest trading blocks in the world. And if that could ever tie itself up to the modern version of NAFTA, which was the idea that George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton had of a trade zone of the Americas. So sometimes when you get in the depth of despair, uh, you can build uh, on it. And the question is, uh, is there the will on the part of governments to do so? And will there be the financial backing from international financial institutions and the private sector to do so? And that'll depend on the governments uh, in these individual countries uh, taking the steps they need to to reform the economies and to try and, and uh, get away from some of the corrupt practices that we've seen over the last few years. Bill, it sounds like a big ask to me and a, and, and a long a long, long, long process. Um, you know, how hopeful are you that we we see some kind of reform in the next 10 years? Well, you know, I'm an optimist in the sense that I saw Latin America come out of the uh, the decade, the so-called decade of the 80s, and reformed itself, but they never continued on with it. And so I, I think uh, this time they really have to move themselves or they're going to fall way behind uh, emerging Asia, even Africa, uh, you know, which is taking steps on COVID. So my hope here is that the governments will respond. The IMF, the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank will provide help. But very important here, and maybe we end on this point, I don't know, on timing, is the local private sectors have to be uh, willing uh, and optimistic about investing in their own country. Because so often in Latin America, the local private sector uh, moves its money out. And you can't expect uh, foreign investment to come in if they see the local private sector moving their money out. So I think there's, there's work here for governments, the private sector, and the international financial institutions to try and take advantage of this terrible situation to put in reforms that they've been holding off on doing for some time. Bill? Thanks once again for joining us. We appreciate it. Always Bill Rhodes, president and CEO of the William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, former chairman at Citibank, a tour de force, Vani, of all things global markets uh, from China all the way to Latin America. And as Bill points out, boy, the challenges in front of that region of the world in Latin America just seem so, so steep. I'm not sure who can lead them out of those challenges. Well, and particularly now during coronavirus, which is uh, ravaging the South as well, you sort of get the impression that everyone would just listen to Bill, everything would be okay. Yep. He has so much experience in all of this, but unfortunately, um, sometimes governments have their own opinions on things. Yeah, but hopefully this can be uh, 
a catalyst for these countries to come together. Despite the volatility in financial markets stemming in large part from the pandemic, one area of the financial markets has seen extraordinary robust new issuance, and that is corporate credit, investment-grade credit, just record months we've seen as companies take advantage of historically low interest rates. To get a, some more color on that, we welcome Steve Kellner. He's head of corporates for PGM Fixed Income. They have over $800 billion firm-wide in fixed income assets, so they know what they're talking about. Steve, thanks so much for joining us here. We've seen so much new issuance in the corporate credit market. My question is, is this company's taking on additional debt to fuel growth, or is it simply refinancing their existing debt and is trying to take advantage here of these historically low rates? First off, thanks for having me this morning. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd say it's probably, um, it's probably both, that um, companies in the short term are increasing their leverage uh, through the increase in, in gross debt. Um, but at the same time, companies have been refinancing a lot of outstanding debt. And a lot of this has been built around increasing liquidity. And we think as we move into 2021, a lot of those companies are going to start um, buying back their debt or paying off maturing debt, especially in the triple B spectrum. So what kinds of decisions do you have to make on a daily basis? Um, I think we want to actually look at, say, macro type of indicators, um, you know, which way is the economy going? Certainly, which way is interest rates and the Fed going to go in here? And then from there, it's a lot of um, bottoms-up analysis, looking at different industries and different companies, ripping apart their balance sheets and income statements, and then actually seeing what their use of their free cash flow as they start to generate it is going to be, and which companies out there will be improving their credit profile going forward. So I'd say it's, it, it's a combination of a uh, top-down um, macro view of the economy and the different industries that are affected and are going to be affected in the future, coupled with a lot of in-depth analysis of the companies and the industries themselves. Hey, Steve, what are you and your team seeing in terms of credit quality out there? We're six, seven months into this pandemic. Uh, there's really some concern here that the economic damage is going to be uh, widespread, continue to be widespread, and perhaps last for longer. What are you seeing in terms of credit quality? Yeah, it's probably more of a, of a K type of environment where you've got the companies that are actually um, in the sweet spot and benefiting from the work at home and other technology-oriented or, or consumer-oriented um, effects. And then you've got the companies that got caught in the headwinds of COVID. Um, and those companies themselves is probably where the opportunity is as you look forward in the sense that those managements now are really, really focusing on cutting expenses They've actually um, stopped their share buybacks. In most cases, have stopped their dividends. They're focusing on um, improving their cash flow and using that cash flow to shore up their balance sheets. So this is one of the rare times in the economic cycle that the manager's behavior are closely aligned with bondholders. And again, that's probably more in the industries that have been caught um, in the downdraft of COVID. And again, most of those would be in the triple B ratings category. What would your advice be for non-sophisticated investors? Because obviously, you know, <laughs> there are different levels of investors and there are certain of those who don't want to be in the stock market right now. Is there any way they could play in, in your market? The, um, our market themselves, since we tend to deal in corporate bonds and it's taxable, it really lends itself much more to institutional investing and pension plans where, the where they're non-taxable or the taxes are deferred. Um, 
But the way to actually do it would be through mutual funds and some of the more perhaps um, core plus or broad market strategy funds, which look to take advantage of corporates, but also selective high yield and selective emerging markets. And those are typically re- referred to as total return bond funds. And that's probably the best vehicle. That way an investor can get active management as well as um, diversification. Steve, how are you guys, from the corporate credit perspective, handicapping the upcoming elections, both the presidential election as well as uh, Senate? Yeah, I think this is a pretty gamey time right now. Um, and, um, and, you know, it, it's, it's not as much probably about um, who wins the presidency as much as it is about um, how, how long it takes to determine who, the, uh, who that winner is um, in here. But we do think that, you know, we are in an environment where the markets are going to stay very volatile until we actually get to the election. And it looks like as though we've actually been able to figure out who that winner is going to be. If you look forward to next year, um, obviously the Democrats are talking about raising taxes. Um, those tax increases for corporate America, if they occur, should be pretty modest, perhaps 21 to something like maybe 25% on the tax rate. But remember, even if the Democrats get in, their primary focus next year is probably going to be to continue to fix the economy. Um, and that's going to be difficult to do if you start increasing taxes on corporations. Just briefly, how much in Fallen Angels are you expecting in the next, you know, six to 12 months? Yeah, the, um, we've had a, we've had a um, drop off in the rate of Fallen Angels recently. There's only been a few in the last few months. Um, the rating agencies, while they have a lot of these companies on negative outlook, they're giving them time um, to get the benefit of the turn in the economy when, um, when the economy fully reopens. Um, and I think that we think that the fallen angels are going to be um, relatively modest um, over the next 12 months. We've had, we've had about $160 billion so far this year, and we would expect to be well under that over the next 12 months. Steve, thank you so much for all the details. Steve Kellner is head of corporates at PGM Fixed Income. And uh, what an interesting job it must be these days with practically every corporate in the market at the moment. It's really just such a fascinating market. It is time now to talk healthcare, a huge, huge policy and market driver these next few weeks. Let's bring in Brian Rye, Senior Healthcare Policy Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Brian, obviously we have the SCOTUS nominee and the potential outcome there. We have Democrats saying that, you know, if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed, that there is the great potential of a strike down of the ACA in its entirety. And there are many other things to discuss as well. Let's start there, though. If Amy Coney Barrett, as we assume, does get no- is nominated now and does get confirmed, is that automatically a strike down of the ACA? Well, hi, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. And, and I would start by saying that, no, I, I don't think it's a certainty that the ACA in its entirety um, would be rendered unconstitutional or struck down. I think what's probably more likely to happen is that you would see the, the so-called individual mandate uh, probably uh, struck down. That's not a, a huge deal because, frankly, because the 2017 tax law that Republicans passed zeroed out the penalty for that. So in, in all effects, the, the mandate's already been uh, rendered um, null and void. Uh, I think what could happen is some uncertainty about, okay, if you strike down the mandate, are there other provisions of the ACA 
such as community rating, guaranteed issue, the so-called pre-existing conditions uh, concern that you've, we've heard a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of talk about. Maybe that could be struck down as well. Um, certainly could create some chaos uh, for the new Congress in 2021 as to, okay, well, then how do you fix that at that point? But I think in terms of the entire law being struck down, um, I'm not sure we'd go that far just yet. So, Brian, we also uh, have a little bit of an election coming up here. Uh, there is uh, speculation that perhaps the Democrats can retake control of the Senate. If that were to occur, what do you think some of the fallout would be for uh, the healthcare space? You know, that's a great question, Paul, and you're right. I know this is a meaningful election for a lot of different groups. I would argue that pharma probably has more at stake than, than, than anyone else, you know, because you're right. If Democrats are able to not only win the presidency but retake control of the Senate, then a lot of the things that, they've liked, that they would like to do are suddenly back on the table. Uh, I think the holy grail for them, the most meaningful reform they'd like to pass, is to give the government the ability to negotiate Medicare drug prices directly with manufacturers. Right now, that's, that's prevented, that's prohibited by federal law. Right now, those price negotiations are between drug makers and the insurers or PBMs who participate in the Medicare Part D program. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats have passed a bill a couple of different times in the past nine months uh, that would give the government that ability, that would repeal that so-called non-interference clause. Um, those, those bills have, un, un, you know, unsurprisingly died in the Senate. And so that Republican Senate has been a firewall for the industry. And as long as that remains in place, I think you would see the status quo continue. But, you know, if Democrats are able to, to win a majority there, then a lot of those things get back on the table. I, one word of caution, though, for, the, for those who may think, well, that would be an automatic, as much as we saw with Republican promises to repeal and replace the ACA, Obamacare, uh, heading into the 2016 election, we saw that they tried and failed to do that in 2017. Sometimes those votes that are easy to take, we know they're not going to be enacted into law become a bit more difficult when the votes actually matter. So I think we could see something similar if it's a slim majority for the uh, Democrats in the Senate. If the Republicans hold on to the Senate, but the White House changes hands, does that mean anything? You know, it, it means probably more on the administrative side. You know, I don't think it means as much because, frankly, President Trump, when he speaks off the cuff, his own interests on health care somewhat align more with Democrats sometimes. Mm. Uh, than with, with Republicans, such as his international pricing index and drug importation and other things that most congressional Republicans oppose, um, but that he personally uh, sort of is, is in favor of. So I would think you would see, obviously, new heads of the FDA, new head of CMS, new head of HHS. And so from an administrative standpoint, they would probably be more likely to roll back some of the, the changes to the ACA. Um, you know, a lot of the things that the Trump administration has done have been to roll back some of those protections, uh, like make it easier for short-term plans to gain a hold in some of the states, give states a lot more flexibility. Uh, for those who don't want to comply with a lot of the ACA mandates to do so, I think you would see that kind of roll back, um, as well as have maybe the, the CMS folks try and restore a bit of funding to the health insurers who participate as well. So, Brian, are investors just kind of staying away from the whole healthcare space until we get a better view of what's going to happen uh, come November? Well, you know, it's one of many factors. Obviously, there's a lot of things going on in the industry right now, a lot of, certainly a lot of interest in development of a vaccine uh, for the COVID-19 pandemic and other things. And in a strange sort of way, this interest in innovation and speed um, is perhaps giving the industry somewhat of a decent argument against uh, what they would term price controls and other things that they would claim would stifle uh, such innovation. And so a lot of moving parts are for the industry right now. 
you know, for better or for worse, Paul, people always get sick. And so no matter who's, um, you know, who's going to win the election, I think there will always be a need and an interest in what the healthcare sector is doing. But yeah, I think the, um, as you alluded to earlier, it's not just the White House, but that control of the Senate, um, given how much the Republican-controlled Senate has been a, a firewall uh, for the industry, particularly pharma, you know, if that changes hands, uh, then the, uh, the calculus changes as well. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for joining us. We really always appreciate you helping us get uh, through these uh, health care uh, issues, which the policy issues, which are just so dense for the average consumer. Brian Rye, Senior Health Care Policy Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Again, so, Vivani, as you point out, we have, you know, a, a increasingly conservative uh, uh, Supreme Court. We've got the elections coming up. Uh, a lot of change from a regulatory perspective for a lot of industries, none perhaps more so than healthcare. And, you know, another question is, will coronavirus eventually be considered a pre-existing condition? You know, if you suffer from longer term right. consequences. So what does it mean for all those people getting sick right now too? Yeah, absolutely. That it's going to be something to pay attention to. The market's up significantly. The Dow up 500 points. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.